Welcome to This Lawyer's Life, a podcast of the New York City Bar Association. Today we meet Carla Johnson, a senior staff attorney at Mobilization for Justice. Mobilization for Justice, or MFJ, is a civil legal services organization where Carla works in the Kinship Caregiver Law Project. In family law, Carla navigates balancing the needs of her clients as litigants and their needs as human beings. Sometimes you may feel like you know what is for the better good, and it's really the client because once you step away from the case, they are the ones putting the pieces back together or having to deal with whatever emotional fallout there is if the case didn't really go their way. After 10 years rising through the ranks at MFJ, Carla has plenty to share about taking on leadership responsibility. Be flexible, but also I think be vocal and also be willing to defer to other colleagues who might have some insight that strengthens your ability as a leader as well. Carla also brings a lot of nuance to challenging discussions about embracing the values of equity, inclusion, and diversity in legal work. A lot of unlearning and learning is still going to be required even for the folks who identify as being in the minority group. It's really important for us all to be educating ourselves because the information is there and our clients are really depending on us to be as educated as we can about the issues. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers and not necessarily of the city bar. Here's your host, Gregory Benstock. Welcome to This Lawyer's Life, a professional development podcast where we talk with lawyers about seizing opportunities, learning lessons the hard way, and about what makes them tick. I'm Gregory Binstock, Director of Professional Development here at the New York City Bar Association, and today I have the pleasure to chat with Carla Johnson. Carla Johnson, you are a senior staff attorney at Mobilization for Justice in the Kinship Caregiver Law Project, where you've practiced for almost 10 years after earning a joint JD and master's in public health, and now you're here with us. Welcome, Carla. We are so glad to have you join us. Thanks for being here. It is a pleasure to be here. Hi there. Appreciate it. You've been an attorney with Mobilization for Justice since you graduated law school in 2014. Tell us how your role at MFJ has changed over time. So, and I almost forgot this, which is funny. It literally just came to my mind. I was going to say I started out as an attorney. I actually started out as a volunteer. And it's so funny because many times attorneys, I I don't know, it's a little bit of a joke, but a lot of times attorneys, paralegals, folks in our support staff may take a bit of a break. But it's almost like coming back home, attorneys have volunteered and then gone on to work in corporate law and then transitioned or come back to MFJ after working in an internship capacity, say, in our or externship capacity in our housing project. Uh, I started out as a volunteer, but briefly, maybe less than a month, there is a bridge program for my law school that supports largely public interest graduates who are in the space uh, where they're still looking for a job opportunity. And so I was able to get some assistance through my law school and volunteering in the capacity of our, what was called our children's rights project at the time, and now has morphed into a longer name. It's called the Warren Susheimer Children's Rights Project. Essentially, in a word, it's our special education group, or in a phrase, it's our special education project. So I started out working with the children's rights project, then alongside one other attorney, it had just developed that year that I'd started and remained myself and the others running for some years. Around my sixth year, I transitioned to our Kinship Caregiver Law Project, which uh, is pretty young, I guess, in comparison to some of our other projects, but over 10 years, so pretty established as well. 
And so I think those 10 years have really flown by. And the six years that I was with our education project was really special. Happy to share more, but it was an offshoot from the clinic that I participated in in law school. Similarly, little did I know the reason why I was writing my law school applications would bring me full circle to the, the project that I'm working in, the practice group that I'm in now. Kinship care is what is called essentially it's also an offshoot of family law where we primarily focus in advocating the faith of family court. Can you tell us about what it's like to take on more leadership responsibilities there and kind of learning curve has come with that for you? Sure. So I think, I hate to say it, it's a little bit of a cliche of a phrase, squeaky will get the oil. I, I don't think it should be that way, honestly. I, I think opportunities, especially in terms of opportunities for growth and leadership, should more or less be part of professional development and to a degree... I think legal services sometimes models what happens in the corporate space, and to some degree that is helpful. But that being said, it's also the squeaky wheel that gets the oil in terms of vibing into the work. And so I think in many ways I've seen attorneys carve out a specialty of sort. For example, I can think of a colleague who worked in our mental health law project and ultimately became the guru for wills and trusts in a state. And so I think Within every practice, there's probably some space that you can dig deeper, whether that's an interest in policy or um, impact litigation. It may not be something that the entire team can wrap their head around or have space and, and, and capacity to join in on. But I think over the past nine years, going on 10 years, I've sought out opportunities to be a leader within MFJ, particularly in our space of DEI work. Around 2016, I was part of the cohort of fellows for the Shriver's Racial Justice Initiative. And that was probably cohort number five. There's been um, years of iterations of that as well. And so I will say that pretty much incited in me the desire to bring what I learned at Shriver Center's Racial Justice Institute back to our organization. One of your guests went alongside me as well for that opportunity. For people who aren't familiar, would you just give us a quick soundbite about what the fellowship is? It is an intensive week of training that really brings home some of the issues that are happening nationally. I think their process is making sure that it's not just the leaders, the managers, the directors of an organization, but making sure there is a social worker or a mid-level or junior attorney who's able to come back to the organization. It just was inspiring, honestly, to me to realize that there is this national group, but also regional group of attorneys. And so we, of course, have an ongoing email listserv. And so whether it's job opportunities or, again, issues that are happening in education in Montana, that someone from the ACLU who attended cohort sit is concerned about or wants to gauge what's happening on a national landscape. I went in originally hoping to do an internal project and an external project and ultimately decided that we needed to, to roll up our sleeves and do the work internally within the organization. We created a task force, if you will, to better figure out how do we do just as what we were speaking about, incorporate racial justice but also highlighting inequities in direct litigation or impact litigation. And then also just taking a look at how do we conduct our intakes? How are we ensuring that for clients or potential clients, we're not limiting how they may identify to whatever's on the census, which I'm sure may have broadened, but 
I think taking a top-down approach on how do we conduct business and are we having an eye towards or pointing a racial justice lens towards our work. And I think, again, we can apply um, some of those leadership skills that are corollaries to our work into direct litigation and the work that we do in the social justice and public interest space. You cannot separate or untangle racial inequities from the work that we do. And again, many names that comes by social justice space, um, especially in a city like New York, where overwhelmingly my clients identify as black, brown, or minority. And that was, I think, one opportunity where I got to really roll up my sleeves and again, um, dig into a space that I'm very passionate about as well as the law. Additionally, for the Children's Rights Project, it was pretty much so new when I joined that my colleague was at one uh, county hospital here in New York, um, and I ended up working with two different county hospitals, and that work really largely focused on addressing the mental health issues and needs in a legal space for minors in age throughout New York City. And so we have the adult version of that that had existed for years prior to the development of our Children's Rights Project. And essentially had to build bridges with, with, within the hospital from the top down and getting them to truly understand what our mission and goal was and that we, we really were not from outside force, but really trying to integrate ourselves in the space of meeting clients where they are. And I could go on about what that looked like on the ground, but also just kind of why it was important for us to be in the psychiatric and mental health unit as opposed to just purely the pediatric units within the county hospitals. And I think most recently, outside of being able to work with and mentor interns over the span of the nine years I've been at Mobilization for Justice, um, I've had the opportunity to, I think, really serve as a leader in the sense that in any project that I'm in, there's someone junior and Interestingly enough, it's year one, year two, and then you're, you truly are a mid-level. And so I think being able to give back in a way, but also being a soundboard to my colleague, again, we're peers, but I think being able to help prepare them, be it for trial or an administrative hearing has been really instrumental because again, it's almost like the attending and the resident, you pretty much have to remain sharp on your skill set. So again, it's, it's taken many different forms in terms of leadership. And I think each iteration has been really unique and, and special to me. Okay, so you brought up a lot of good topics that we want to get to, but let's start with where you left off. You described yourself as mid-level at, at your organization. You're not in your first two years. You're not necessarily part of the senior executive leadership team or what have you. How do you use that space to effectuate leadership both up and down? Do you have an example of how you use that space to bridge that gap? How do you work with folks that are fresh-eyed and bushy-tailed? And how do you work with folks that are older than you because you're at critical keystone stage? I think it's important to have some degree of humility at any point, whether you are in senior leadership or, again, it's expected if you are more junior or even an intern. But I think like insight that we have that we bring from our own perspectives and backgrounds and our different experiences are relevant and matter. So I've really seen amazing ideas um, from say interns or ways that we may operate a little bit differently because they are helping with say our intake line and closer to the pulse, the same as an attorney such as myself has that experience as well. 
And so I think one, it's just about making sure that there is a seat at the table and no one wants you bogarting and pulling up your own chair. <laughs> but sometimes I think it's important to make sure that you voice again issues that may be relevant across the board for whether it's a project or the entire organization. I still know and experience and see, especially being in a smaller project in a very large organization that's grown from me being able to name every single person across the organization to us growing leaps and bounds. And I think it's really important to, again, to see where you may be able to fit in. And that may not, that may not be, again, pulling up a seat to the managerial table, but that may be something, again, where across projects we're communicating. Often we are in our own silos and bubbles. And I wish it were not the case, but I do think it's important to be the bridge in communicating with other projects and identifying some of the issues that are happening. For example, I will add immigration. One may think it's not as relevant to family court, but it is so integrated in our work. And I am not someone who can really know the law that, as described to me from my colleagues in immigration, is really ever-changing. For the SIDGE or Special Immigrant Juvenile Status case, it's, in, it's important for me to seek out my colleagues for that insight. Um, I'll also say there's opportunities outside the organization um, where, again, you're able to be that seat at the table, if you will, for the organization. And especially in the past few years during the pandemic and where we are now, I've sought out every opportunity that I can think imaginable to gain greater insight for myself and being willing, to, being willing and able to share that insight internally within the organization from bar associations to seeking out opportunities to speak on national uh, panels for conference. Those are opportunities that not braggingly I have found, but I, I think it's by being in the circles and having a seat at the table. So sometimes it's, it's pulling up a seat to a different table. I think sometimes that's reflected in what gain you bring to your project or within the organization because everybody can't be everywhere all at once. I think be flexible, but also I think be vocal and also be willing to defer to other colleagues who might have some insight that strengthens your ability as a leader as well. So you've spent your entire career thus far in public interest law. What would you say is the greatest misconception that other lawyers have about public interest work and public, public interest practitioners generally? I mean, and I don't want to misspeak or speak out of turn. I've only really been surrounded by public interest attorneys. Many of my friends from law school also pursued a path in public interest. I think many folks, maybe even if you're in law for a few years out or have never transitioned or spent time at a legal service organization is a misconception that one, it's a nine to five. It's not. I think as for most folks, it is something that if you have a really hectic case, you may be working on that over the weekend or you may end up working on that beyond the hours of nine to five. I think as a general manner, matter, it's important to aim to have work-life balance. I think that's a true point, whether you're in-house, at a firm, in government. And I think it's also something that to some degree comes with time in your career and feeling comfortable or safe to set up those boundaries. And I think it's also a misconception that the work may not be as challenging or as engaging. And it's, to me, again, for the furthest thing from the truth, I feel like the work that one does in the criminal or civil space in public interest work or in any other facet, um, especially as we've seen 
in recent years during the pandemic, it's so integrated with the day-to-day lives of, of folks, uh, how we are affected in terms of healthcare access, the economy, housing, all of these issues, especially again in a city as big as New York, there are just all of these different collateral issues that not even just low income or no income residents are dealing with, but even folks who are the average person. When you talked before about meeting clients where they are, I think that's powerful. Do you have an example of a time when you had that resonate for you and were able to see that and change the way you handled a client matter because of it? Yes. Funny enough, I had this client reach back out to me just yesterday. Often, I think we as attorneys have to really, truly work on, especially if you're working in this space, it may be a little bit easier when the client's in the driver's seat, say maybe in the corporate space, but really the client should have a voice and be in the driver's seat no matter what. I think it's important for us to take a step back and figure out how to center our clients because it is their case, especially when you're dealing with matters as personal, important, and life-changing as family law. So it's so important, and I think it's easy to almost be forgetful of this as let the client narrate and tell you the story. So even though you may be like months or years into a case, you still want to build in these check-ins to see where the client is. So for me, the case that comes to mind is a case for a grandmother who was seeking custody of her granddaughter. She'd been caring for her granddaughter and two siblings who were unrelated to the grandmother informally without a court order for close to a year. The grandmother was at the point, the breaking point of caring for the children and wondering when the mother may be able to return. And it was meant to be a couple of weeks and weeks turned into months. And so she filed in family court for custody. And so the fight began, right? And I think, again, it's checking on the client to see how will the responding party react to being served? Is it better to have a conversation about handling it outside of court? So we got to the point that we were engaged in a full-blown trial. And at some point, I spoke to my client and she revealed new information regarding her own housing situation. And she just needed to get out of the apartment that she was in, which was a larger apartment, but had many issues that the landlord was not uh, responding to or repairing. And so she, I think either through lottery or some other means, got a smaller apartment, but had less issues. And so once she moved into the smaller apartment, with, which was one bedroom, she let me know she was in the process, but at the same time relayed to me, she didn't think she would be in a position to have her granddaughter come live with her. And that was the goal for well over a year. But as opposed to pushing for and trying to win a trial, I said, this is your case. I don't want you fighting with family, especially if this case may end in a way that the mother is successful and a judge is unwilling to put an order in as far as visitation. So we ended up settling the case. Sometimes you may feel like you know what is for the better good, and it's really the client because once you step away from the case, they are the ones putting the pieces back together or having to deal with whatever emotional fallout there is if the case didn't really go their way. And we have no way of predicting how the case will really go. So we struck the balance and it worked out. She was able to see her granddaughter over the summer months, which was part of the agreement. And so we're speaking with her about a different issue now. And when you're in that kind of position, either this case or another, I imagine you have to really sharpen your listening skills because you must be on a track where you're, you have lots of people pinging you, needing all different things all day long. And then the client might come out to you and say, here's a new issue. Here's something that's changed in my life. And in family law, 
this must be all the time. How do you exercise your listening skills and your empathy skills so that you're able to actually interrelate that to the case and not just go with the strategy that you were thinking a year ago made sense for the case? I mean, I try to give the client and myself grace. And years into this, I generally can tell when a client is somewhat on the fence. It's really tough and tricky when you're engaged in the throes of litigation or you filed a petition and you think it's a winnable case. It, honestly, it is less to me about winning um, a case because these, again, to me, are really personal matters. Thinking back to the application for law school, it's like, oh, okay, I got to put this application together. What can I write about? And I'm not the person who really came to law school at whatever young age saying that I wanted to be a lawyer. I really fell into it. And honestly, to me, based on my own background, there are many folks who can't afford a lawyer. So I think just having a listening ear oftentimes is what folks are looking for. And you don't want to walk a client or potential client down a path that you can already perceive they're not comfortable with. If they change their mind midway through, again, that's where I give them the grace to change their mind. I, I don't know that it's the best example, but I do like to make it akin to being a doctor. Like we all have to go to doctors who may know some doctors, but ultimately like our health is supreme. And so you rely on the doctor to have insight and tell you everything that could be in the range of whatever you could consider, but it's not their job to really tell you which box or which option to pick. I think you have to see it that way. Again, it's not make or break if you change strategy midway. You mentioned your law school application. We noticed and noted here that you went to school for a dual degree, your JD and your master's in public health. Can you tell us a little bit about why you decided to pursue both of those degrees and what that experience was like? Sure. So I, again, I kind of stumbled into law. That's not entirely true because I have an older sister who also went to law school. But I think being the youngest or being a younger sibling, you often don't want to necessarily walk the same line as your siblings or you want to be an individual. But I think it was a blessing to be able to have at least one person close to me who worked in law. And so I think just transitioning out of a few years working in one space and then ultimately working in a huge law firm um, here in New York that also gave me a bird's eye view into what it would look like to be in a corporate law setting or to be a lawyer and gave me an opportunity to be so to many lawyers. Again, some who may be working on pro bono matters, some who may take a sabbatical or transition in-house and gave me an idea of what different career paths there may be on the corporate side. I think all along, I wanted to pursue something social justice focused and thought about going back to school for social work or public health. And I think just at the time, I lived very close to Columbia, where again, there's a law school, there's a public health school. And I did some degree of informational interviews with individuals, but really I was already leaning towards the social sciences. That is my background from undergrad. And so I really was strongly leaning towards public health. I thought, what more could I do if I coupled a social work or public health degree with something that had a, a different degree, but to me, a stronger degree of force, be it policy or I wanted to do take the legislative route. Um, I just felt like more doors would be open, potentially in pursuing the joint degree. And what the experience was like in Michigan was really great. I think when I had the breaks to transition to the public health school, I started out in the law school, that it was a, a break really much 
needed for myself, but it also just gave me an opportunity to be exposed to two different campuses, two different types of professors and peers and experiences were very different at both schools. And I live pretty close to the law school. But again, I think it fed me in the way that I needed to be fed as far as getting the exposure to public health. And I was pretty certain that once I'd finished the joint degree, I was done. <laughs> so I'm glad that I had that. I'm not sure what transitions my career may take in terms of leaning more heavily into the public health degree. But I think it was really great to be positioned in both schools to not have to focus primarily on a law degree being transitioned. So essentially, I split my time in the four years while I was in Ann Arbor. Okay, so which kids are cooler, the law school kids or the public health kids? Really, you're just going to yeah, be on the spot here. Yeah, I am. I suffered. I'm going to say the public health school kids, right. mostly just because I think law school really is, I didn't want to believe it, but I think it's a bit of a pressure clicker. You don't get any sense of how you're doing until you've taken your exams. So, and, and truly, I think most folks don't know what to expect. They're the brightest, they're super smart and come oftentimes from different backgrounds, be an engineer and then go to law school. But I also think that public health well, because it wasn't just health behavior and education, which was my track, again, to some degree, I'm a little bit doing that from having worked in our children's rights project. And to some degree, again, there are components of that in my work currently, but there was also the health management and policy side. Again, there were folks in the law school I know who, let's say, were getting their policy degree at the Kennedy School or they were at Johns Hopkins. So they were literally having to be physically in two different locations. But I think it just it it just had a different feel and there were transitions. I should just say there there were construction projects at the law school, but also the the public health school at the time was like a new build. So it had a new shiny feel. <laughs> but yeah, no, I bleed blue and I will say that the law school, amazing folks here in New York, I'm able to join for different events that the New York club for not the law school, but the university as a whole mm -hmm. will have to watch games and things like that. I'm appreciative again to have been a part of both campuses. Let's take a walk through your day yesterday, or let's say the most demanding day you had in the last week or two, just so we have a sense of what really happens in the life of Carla as a lawyer. Yeah. So yesterday I had a continuation of a trial and an appearance I did not expect that I would have to be preparing subpoenas for this case, but I realized I need more records from an agency that is involved in the case. I also totally realized I need way more time now have that to prep my witnesses and I'm adding additional witnesses in um, for the case. I think it's important to create the space for giving each client in case the appropriate amount of attention that is necessary for that case. And I really enjoy trial work, but I, I think you really have to roll up your sleeves and dig into the work for trials. It's been a little bit tricky having some degree of balance for that, but I really think I can shape the, the case up. I think also it's tricky because this case is one that is not overwhelmingly clear that it would be a, a success. And so I kind of battle with that a bit. Once we are engaged on a case, we're engaged. And so again, trying to manage the expectations of my client, but also trying to put myself fully into the case is still, I think, very much so important. Balancing that with 
coming back to the office and returning calls and sending emails and being present for meetings and assisting pro bono attorneys who I also mentor for a specific set of cases for our adoptions. So you have to wear many hats throughout the day. And again, I had to unplug from the trial and what all had occurred just to reset and come back to the office with a level head on what else remained for the day. Did you get the chance to eat any normal meals? And if so, what was the best food you had yesterday? Work-life balance question. It's not the best. I'm pretty sure I had a banana on the way out of the door and brought two oranges, which were not eaten until maybe four o'clock. Okay. So let's go on work-life balance yesterday. Yeah. And I think I went out for tacos for like dinner. I grabbed tacos. No, it was um, dumplings and udon. But most days, because to some degree, you have the ability to be in office, you have the ability to work remotely. I think when you're having to travel to court, especially as, as far out as, say, some of the boroughs like Queens or the Bronx for myself, you, you kind of have to mentally prepare. And so I honestly feel like just depends. I'm not the attorney who's in court every single day for a trial. Again, some of my colleagues who are public defenders, that may be really what they're experiencing. And even some of my colleagues in different practices at Mobilization for Justice. But I think, again, the balance is, is important. Yeah, trying to have healthier milk. <laughs> it's uh, it's pretty tough. I was so tempted to grab pizza in the Bronx. Oh, goodness. <laughs> there are worse ideas, I think, but fair enough. Carlo, as your career has progressed, how have you found or built professional community for yourself? Yes. For me, especially in the past four to five years, I've had the space to step back and figure out where do I need to plug in as far as communities. Fortunately, in New York, there are so many different bar associations, but the City Bar has really been like a home for me. I've been really fortunate to go in person for someone our organization was honored for the Fire Starter Award <laughs> this past year. And so I was able to go in person for that and connect with City Bar members, but also folks who were there in support of their colleague. For me, it's also been really important and instrumental to tap into the work of the Children in the Laws Committee. And this year, this summer, I was able to help together a panel for the Children in the Law Committee that focused on post-ops and how it impacts families, as well as minors who may be in the foster care system, accessing information and reproductive access. To me, it's been really great, and I quite regret, wish I had been involved at the outset of my career. I've seen some amazing law students surprisingly be engaged and find time during law school to to go to different events. And so I think it's really important if you can create that space and that time to build community. Um, I, I really wish I had done that again, not just selfishly for insight in my career practice area of family law, but really it is an opportunity to build bridges and meet folks across the city and beyond. And so I'm engaged in a city bar as well as a few other bar associations. And it's been really awesome. Let's talk about goal setting. Do you ever think about setting some, either on the macro level or the micro level, some uh, benchmarks that you'd like to see in your career or certain professional development benchmarks you'd like to see happen? Like I said, either throughout one year or where you'd like to see yourself in five years. Do you, do you think about those kind of goals and benchmarks for yourself? Yes. 
And I will say, I think it's so important to to do just that. And it may not happen in year one, but I really encourage folks who may be in their junior years or not even out of law school to be mindful, even if it is just writing the goals down and making some sort of markers for yourself, even if you don't meet them. Honestly, for me, it was my goal in transitioning to our kinship caregiver law project to have that much more litigation experience, uh, especially since like a little bit felt like I was at a deficit in transitioning. And I'll caution that's not always true either, which unfortunately for me, I just filed a ton of cases during the pandemic when I transitioned in because of that fear. And so I think it's important to be patient with yourself if you are making transitions in your career. For me personally, I'm not sure exactly what transition may be uh, on the horizon, but I am always looking for opportunities to engage in impact litigation. I think because of the nature of the work that we do and the volume of cases, the the need is there. And so I will be mindful, I think, in the coming years to to seek out those opportunities, be it partnering with other legal service organizations. I've had the opportunity to work on an amicus brief in the past three years since being in the Kinship Caregiver Law Project. And I think that's important work to continue as well. Our organization in the past few years has developed a special litigation team. And I think having that face carved out is important for cross-collaboration purposes and for us to be able to communicate with the arm of the organization that may help effectuate any impact litigation. So I really have my eyes towards that potentially, as well as building connections with different law schools. Our work is so unique, um, but I'm also connected to a group of advocates and attorneys across the states who work on an issue called the hidden foster care system. And so I think there are so many ripe issues in family court. Another group just sent an email about opportunities or, or means of providing counsel to parents who are not yet in a family court case or hear what we call an Article 10 case for abuse and neglect. But again, there are just so many barriers for families to even know what their rights may be, including our kinship caregivers, just because their grandma or auntie doesn't mean that there can't be some issue that comes up where child protective services not called or involves or questioning the family. You throw into that language barriers and it just becomes that much more complicated for folks to understand that they can ask for a lawyer to be present, even though they're not currently in court or to consult with an attorney. And so... It's interesting to me to see that we're at the place of identifying all of these different issues and how we can curb the number of cases that even end up in family court in the first place and separate families. Any way that I can be a participant or fully engaged in preventing families, including kinship relatives, from having to be the caregivers in the first place, um, which I think oftentimes they would prefer that their son or their daughter or sibling be able to maintain the family together. So I think, again, just branching out beyond the direct impact space and figuring out how to have a broader impact, be it in New York or beyond. And is there a specific case that you can share with us that was either the most meaningful to you or your greatest professional victory that you can share with us? Yeah. One of the first cases that I filed in our Kinship Caregiver Law Project made me really realize, like, secondary trauma (laughs) Vicarious trauma is real, but I think just by sheer adrenaline and wanting to help the family, wasn't expecting to have a case that had a COVID element to it. 
many of the folks that I spoke to at that point were not, I don't want to say we're not impacted, but we're not impacted to the extent that a relative had passed or was sick uh, because of COVID. Um, I had not spoken to frontline workers and I can only imagine what that experience was like for any caregiver. But I got a call and ended up working with a family, a couple who was seeking custody of three minor nephews of theirs, all under the age of 10 at the time. Their parents had passed from COVID really within weeks of each other, which is really heartbreaking. The parents were, to, to my recollection, like maybe late 30s, early 40s. And so the family, the parents did not have a plan or had not identified who they wanted to care for the children, but the family came together. The three uncles, one of my clients, decided that my client and his wife would seek custody of the children. And I filed an emergency petition in that case. And many of the cases that I was filing were emergency petitions, but again, not necessarily had this, this COVID element to them. And so the case really wrapped quickly, but it has always stood out in my mind just because we all have families, and I think the families that are mindful and have their eyes toward planning for wills and trust in a state may think that they have to have something to actually put into the trust, right, or put into the will. But I think just as, as, as surely as we all have families, any parent should be mindful of and looking towards identifying who would be able to step into their place and be the caregiver in the event of their incapacity or inability to do so. These parents were so young. So I think the case definitely went in a whole different direction, let's just say, because we won, we won the case. Um, but sadly, I think that the uncles may have had a disagreement. I think truly because everybody wanted to just care for these children. But truly, I think it stood out as an important case in my career because the family really had no idea how to proceed. There were other collateral issues that touched upon special education for two of the three siblings, the minor boys. And so, of course, I referred them to our education project where I knew for sure they were in great hands. There were issues as far as accessing the apartment to get records and belongings of the children. For me, it was, what else can we do? And so I'm reaching out to the individual in our office who helps with outside grant funding and was able to help get beds for the children. So then I had another similar case come up where the mother passed away, sadly, from cervical cancer at, a, again, a very young age. Same approach. What all can we do to embrace and support this family? The sad reality is a lot of families don't even know that we exist or that they can reach out. And so I know so many families are just struggling financially. But again, the families that do come to us, it is a wraparound service approach. And I think so important for those clients to mention all the issues. And when I do, I'm like, yes, what else can we help you with? How do you build the values of diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging into your work, either vis-a-vis -vis your clients or at your organization? Where does that really intersect on the ground with what you're doing on a day-to-day -day basis? Yes, I think it's really easy to tell yourself, I'm just doing my work, I go to court, I write this motion, this brief. I think there are so many different ways that you can interconnect race and equity into your work, specifically if you're working in a city like New York, but also in public, public service or public interest. Overwhelmingly, our clients identify as Black, Brown, or minority. And so to me, 
even for the case that I went to court for just yesterday, I thought of it and, and realized my clients are brown. I am an African-American woman. I identify as a person of color. Everyone else, except for the caseworker who was present, typically did not appear to be black or brown. And so I think, again, my clients were brown and Spanish speaking and I speak Spanish, but I think even in that space, again, I'm not going to discount the difference in me being a native Spanish speaker. And so again, I think we have to sometimes let ourselves be aware of how these different connections and disparities and cultural competency, as I mentioned earlier, are so important to be aware of and to put in the center of your case. Um, I think there's been so many reports, including during the pandemic, especially about disparities that are happening for families, be it at the removal level or just, again, point of contact with the family courts that the court itself is grappling with and trying to get a handle of how can we, for example, have an appropriate number of interpreters available, which again can potentially create delays in cases being adjudicated in a fair and timely and just manner. But for me, as far as my work, I don't have clients who are saying this happened because I'm black or brown or poor. But again, I am aware of it. I'm aware of it from my own experience as a woman of color. Um, and so it's not about, again, being prideful and pushing or forcing those issues. But I think it's important we're appropriate to interject. And again, having that seat at the table matters so much more. And so I don't have the data points. I don't think I need them. I think many people will see, oh, there are, for example, 5% of attorneys who identify as X. I don't think you need that to know that the numbers are not the same, be it for women, folks of color, and others who may fall into some sort of designated minority group. But I think it shows in how we approach our work, or it should. I think that's true for our colleagues who are allies or don't um, identify as a minority, um, if you will. And so I think it's important for us all, yeah, do the CLEs. Yes, have the programs in your office about anti-racism or um, how to be an ally or privilege or all of these key things, again, we, we could have those in law school as well. But I think a lot of unlearning and learning is still going to be required, even for the folks who identify as being in the minority group. And so I'm so glad that we're broadening our understanding of what diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging means. It should be ever-changing and it should be something that I think a student smart law offices are having an eye towards as well. Attorneys, sure, but I don't think it should be left to the attorneys to really know how to incorporate this into their work. And I think it can also, on the other hand, be a lot on the shoulders of attorney or staff in a legal setting to be grappling with the legal issues, as well as if you are a person of color or a minority to be the spokesperson or try to be the educator. I think it's it's really important for us all to be educating ourselves because the information is there and our clients are really depending on us to be as educated as we can about the issues. Carla Johnson, thank you so much for being with us on This Lawyer's Life. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of This Lawyer's Life. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers and not necessarily of the city bar. If you enjoy this podcast, please like and subscribe wherever you listen. Find more City Bar podcasts on Apple, Spotify, Google, iHeart, or at our website at www.nycbar.org podcasts.
be sure to check out Building Belonging, a podcast that embraces authentic conversations about DEIB solutions by amplifying the most marginalized voices in the legal industry and exploring spaces others dare not. This podcast was produced and edited by Eli Cohen.